I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at the newspaper headlines from major events in our nation's history, and then I ignore those headlines and find out what else was happening across the country on the exact same day. This week's major headline is taken from the Davenport Democrat out of Davenport, Iowa. Although I could have found a similar headline in probably thousands of newspapers across the country and across the world. The date is March 2nd, 1932. If I had to guess, I would assume that very few of you listening today know what happened on that day just from hearing the date. Technically, this event actually happened the evening before on March 1st, but of course it didn't make it into the newspapers until the 2nd. This is a big, bold headline, and there isn't just one or two paragraphs about the event, but multiple pages of articles about the subject. Friends, do you have any guesses yet? I'll give you a couple of clues. First, this event is something that is every parent's worst nightmare for their kids. Second, the child the headline is about made the newspaper because he had a world-famous father who had accomplished something major five years before. Okay, with those clues, maybe you've guessed what our headline is. Our headline reads, Lindbergh Kidnap Note Threatens Harm to Babe. On March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh's baby boy was kidnapped right out of his crib on the second floor of his family's home in New Jersey. Charles Lindbergh had become famous, of course, for being the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean back in May of 1927. When he and his wife Anne had a baby boy in 1930 and named him Charles Jr., the news made headlines all over the world. Think of some of the celebrities of modern times and the fact that everything they do makes news, whether it's what they're eating, what they're wearing, where they're visiting, who they're friends with. Basically, that's how the Lindbergh family was back in the 1930s. So when young Charles was kidnapped, it made headlines all over the world. Young Charles's captor demanded ransom. Charles and Anne were willing to do anything to get their son back, and they paid $70,000 in ransom money. Now, $70,000 is a lot of money, but if you look at what that amount of money would be equal to today, it's as if the Lindberghs paid $1.3 million in ransom. After the ransom was paid, the authorities hurried to the place where the kidnappers said they could find Charles Jr., but the baby wasn't there. He wasn't anywhere. They waited for months without any indication of where their child was, and then, sadly, his little body was found. Investigators believed he was actually killed the same night he was taken. A man was eventually convicted and sentenced to death for the incident, but it didn't do much to take away the sorrow and pain of the Lindbergh family, and they ended up moving to Europe for a few years to get away from the publicity. Now, this story is fascinating, and if you haven't read much about it, I recommend you do because there are some fascinating conspiracy theories out there. However, this podcast isn't about the famous stories. It's about the stories that weren't quite as well known. So, we're going to switch gears and talk about what else was reported in the newspapers on March 2nd, 
1932. For my first story today, I'm sticking with the Davenport Democrat newspaper and the theme of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Sharing a front page with the Lindbergh incident is a headline that reads, Ohio boy of 11 abducted on the way to school. This story is about the kidnapping of James DeJute Jr. Just like young Charles Lindbergh, James DeJute was named after his father who was a well-known contractor in a town called Niles, Ohio. He went by Jimmy back then, so that's what we'll call him. Now, Niles is a small town in northeastern Ohio, roughly an hour away from Akron and just more than that from Cleveland. It's almost to the Pennsylvania border. Back in the early 30s, the town of Niles had a population of around 16,000 people. Today, 90 years later, its population is about 2,000 more than that. Not a lot has changed. On March 2nd, 1932, Jimmy was walking to school with his cousin Anna Mae. The cousins were roughly the same age and probably walked to school together regularly. It was just after 8 a.m. and, according to Anna, while they were crossing through a vacant lot, they noticed a brown car parked there. Two men were with the car, and they had the hood up as if something was wrong and they were making attempts to fix it. I doubt Anna or James gave much thought to the car or the men at first, but when the men grabbed Jimmy and threw him in the car, the morning turned into terror for the young children. Any kidnapping is scary and newsworthy, But what the men said to the children right before they grabbed Jimmy is what made me decide I had to keep researching this because there had to be way more to this story than just an unfortunate child being snatched at random. According to this article, Anna told police that the men called out to the two children and asked if they knew where the contractor James DeJute lived and if Jimmy was his son. That right there told me this kidnapping wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. This crime was something that had been planned ahead of time, and the men must have known the children's morning routine and their route to school. Unfortunately, that was all the information the Davenport Democrat had on the situation, and after a couple of short paragraphs, the article ended. I decided to look in newspapers in Ohio for more information. In the Marion Star out of Marion, Ohio, the information given is roughly the same, except it doesn't list Anna as a cousin and rather says she's visiting the family. That doesn't mean she isn't a cousin, though. In this version of the article, Anna told police that at one point during the scuffle, Jimmy managed to break free from the men, but unfortunately, they quickly recaptured him. Also in this version of the article, it says that a 14-year-old by the name of Catherine witnessed the kidnapping from across the street. She was able to get a license plate number. Okay, the new information was interesting, but I still wanted more. I mean, there had to be more, right? This time I read the report of the kidnapping found in the Marysville Journal Tribune out of Marysville, Ohio. This version of events is proof of why sources are so important in journalism. In modern times, we know that just because something is in the news doesn't mean it's completely accurate or that we have all the details. But we're not going to get into that subject right now because I've talked about it before. Basically, you just need to know that even in the 1930s, details of accounts varied greatly from one newspaper to the other. In the Marysville Journal Tribune version, Jimmy DeJue is 12 rather than 11. Not a big deal. 
Also in this version, Jimmy's father had already offered a $1,000 reward for anyone who could help get his son back. This version lists Jimmy's companion as his cousin, but reports that her name is Edna May rather than Anna. In this version, Edna, or Anna, tells cops that a car pulled up to the curb and asked who Jimmy was. It doesn't mention anything about the men pretending to have a broken down car. The 14-year-old witness isn't mentioned in this version either. Instead, this version says that a Mr. and Mrs. Woodward witnessed the kidnapping and got the license plate number. It also reported that a man by the name of Glenn Burnside heard Edna's screams and began chasing the car. Now, despite the varied stories of how the kidnapping went down, one fact remained the same, and that was the fact that young James DeJute was gone and nobody knew where he was. Police and citizens all over Ohio and Pennsylvania searched for him by car, by motorcycle, and on foot. Police set up roadblocks and stopped passing cars. Despite all their efforts, three days passed by with no answers and no sign of poor Jimmy DeJute. Then, someone called in a tip to the police department and that tip led police to an abandoned house just north of Youngstown, Ohio, just a few miles away from Jimmy's town. The house police were told to search was some sort of gambling house or liquor store or a resort of some type. Remember, prohibition was still in effect at this time, so I wouldn't be surprised if the house had been used for all kinds of illegal activity. Anyway, a group of police from neighboring cities and towns banded together and surrounded the house. An officer kicked in the door and they rushed in. Other than a mattress and a couple of pillows, the house was empty of furnishings. But there was a fire burning in the kitchen stove, proving it hadn't been long since someone had been around. Then one of the men, a Detective Harrison, found a math textbook on the floor. He knelt down and opened the cover. Written inside was an address in Niles, Ohio, for the Lincoln School and the name James DeJute. The room fell silent, and then one of the officers yelled Jimmy's name. From somewhere in the house, the men heard, Yes, sir! Yes, sir! Here I am! The officers began searching for the source of the voice and discovered a fake wall, again showing how questionable the history of this home was. The police kicked in the wall, and there they found Jimmy, standing between two men, one of which was holding a revolver. Jimmy actually recognized one of the officers rescuing him and rushed into the man's arms, begging the man to take him home. While some of the officers stayed behind to arrest the men holding Jimmy, another officer drove Jimmy home. They drove down his street with sirens blaring, and Jimmy jumped out of the car and into his father's arms before the car even came to a complete stop. His father picked him up and carried him inside to his waiting mother. Can you imagine that reunion? In another connection to today's major headline, before Jimmy was found, his mother had sent a note to Mrs. Lindbergh telling her that she was praying for the safe return of both of their sons. Unfortunately, the Lindberghs didn't get the happy reunion the DeJute family got. After young Charles Lindbergh was found deceased two months later, the town of Niles, Ohio planted a tree in memorial to him. Thousands of people showed up for the ceremony and Jimmy DeJute turned over the first shovelful of dirt. As far as the kidnappers go, one of the men, Dal Hargraves, pled guilty and didn't have a trial by jury. A judge sentenced him to life in prison for his actions on March 18, 
1932, just 16 days after the kidnapping took place. I couldn't find any more information about him, so I don't know if he was ever paroled or not. The other man, John DeMarco, wasn't in attendance at the actual kidnapping, but he stood watch over Jimmy so he was an accomplice. He was sentenced on March 21st to serve 1 to 20 years for his actions. He was denied parole in 1934, but then after serving 11 years behind bars, he was released from prison on March 1st, 1944. I picked my second story of the day because of a single word, and that word is treasure. The chances of me unearthing a buried treasure or finding a sunken treasure ship in the middle of the ocean are zilch. But there's always that little voice in the back of my head saying, what if that legend you heard is true? What if there really are gold coins buried in the mountains over there? Or a sunken ship in that lake over there? Because of this, I love watching reality shows or documentaries about lost treasure. Even if I can't find the loot myself, I just want someone to find it. I want someone to have a cool story to tell, and I want answers to old mysteries. On March 2nd, 1932, multiple newspapers in California reported about a ship that docked there on its way to a big treasure hunt. In most cases, the mention of the ship was very brief, but the Los Angeles Times went into a lot more detail, so I'm going to start there. The headline reads, Pirate's Island Gold Sought. Adventurers go to seek mystery riches. I mean, how could I not keep reading with a headline like that, right? Anyway, this article is about a ship named the Silver Wave. After an eight-day journey from Vancouver, Canada, it stopped in California on its way to an island called Cocos Island. For those who don't know, Cocos Island is an island about 300 miles off the coast of Costa Rica. Now, depending on which source you believe, it's possible that the opening scenes of the movie Jurassic Park, the scenes where the island is first shown, are actually views of Cocos Island. Other sources say those scenes were shot in Hawaii. Either way, we do know for sure that the fictitious island Michael Crichton invented for his book and the movie was based on Cocos Island. So, now that you know a little bit about the island, let's jump back to 1932 and the Silver Wave ship. The person heading up the expedition is a man by the name of Colonel J.E. Leckie. He was described as a World War I hero and engineer. One of his crew members was an 80-year-old man named Captain A.P. Whidden. The 1932 expedition marked the fourth time Captain Whidden had gone treasure hunting on Cocos Island. Each time, he came back empty-handed. But this time, Colonel Leckie insisted they'd be successful. Why was he so confident? Because they had something no other treasure hunting expedition to Cocos had had at their disposal. Now, you might be thinking that I'm going to tell you about a mysterious treasure map that someone found in Grandma's attic, but as exciting as that would be, it's not right. The crew of the Silver Wave had, and I quote, a scientifically constructed divining apparatus. I don't know about you, but when I heard the word divining and scientific in the same sentence, my face got a skeptical look. You can't see me, but I'm making that face right now. From the description in the LA Times, it sounded like the apparatus was used by wearing some sort of metal belt. Then when the machine passed near iron or other precious metals, it would react. 
In other articles, I saw the device referred to as a metallophone. To me, it sounds like it was an early metal detector, which is a lot more believable than divining rods. Anyway, the crew was so sure that they were going to have success on the trip that they were picking up an additional crew of soldiers and government officials in Costa Rica before venturing out to the island, just so that the government officials could protect and guard the treasure when it was found. The expedition had a deal with the Costa Rican government that Costa Rica would get one-third of anything they found, and you'd better believe the government was going to send someone along to represent them. Now, I wanted to know why the expedition thought there was treasure on the island, and it turns out there are many stories and legends about that exact subject. Over multiple centuries, dating from the 1500s all the way to the 1800s, it's said that many pirates buried treasure on the island. One tell shared in the article is that a pirate by the name of Davis was known to frequent the area with a thousand buccaneers. Arr, shiver me timbers. He started to get nervous that one of those men would try to take his treasure, so he buried it on Cocos Island. His treasure was said to include hundreds of thousands of pieces of eight and jewels and treasure from Ecuador. Another story says that a British naval officer by the name of Bennett Graham decided to make a career change and became a pirate because that's a natural move, right? He buried his loot on Cocos Island, but before he could return for it, he was captured and executed. A woman named Mary Welch was on his ship when he was captured, and she was sent to prison too. But when Mary's sentence was up, she led a crew back to the island to find the hidden treasure of Bennett Graham claiming she witnessed it being buried and knew the exact location. Unfortunately, the landmarks had changed so much that they never found the place she was looking for. A third story is that as war was raging in Peru, a man by the name of Captain Thompson took all of Lima's treasure aboard his ship for safekeeping. But instead of returning it to Peru, he took it for himself and buried it on the island. Those three stories barely scratched the surface of the stories about pirates and Cocos Island, and Colonel Leckie knew the stories, and he was determined to be the one to find the treasures. Want to know the amount of treasure estimated to be on the island? One hundred million dollars worth. Sounds pretty good, right? After reading the article from March of 1932, I researched to see if I could find any record of Colonel Leckie's expedition finding anything. The first information came from the province newspaper out of Vancouver two months later in May of 1932. That newspaper reported that the crew had been working hard on the island and their divining apparatus or metallophone had already helped them find shovels and picks from previous search crews, but no treasure yet. Then the next time we heard anything about the crew is an additional two months later in July of 1932. Here, the Victoria Daily Times out of British Columbia reported that Colonel Leckie wanted to shut down rumors that they had found the treasure and were sending it home on Canadian destroyers. He insisted they hadn't found anything yet. After four months on the island without finding anything, Colonel Leckie was getting pretty frustrated, and it shows in a quote from that same article. He said, How did anybody ever get the notion we would ever find anything on this godforsaken island? End quote. Um, yeah, things weren't going so well. 
In August and September, newspapers reported that the treasure was almost found and they'd surely be making an announcement soon. In October, the Silver Wave ship left Colonel Leckie and other members of the expedition on the island and returned to Canada for the winter. Finally, in March of 1933, a year after Colonel Leckie's crew left, it was announced that they were calling it quits and leaving the island. They didn't find the treasure. Fast forward to 1978, and Costa Rica declared Cocos Island to be a national park and banned any more treasure hunting expeditions in order to preserve the island. A couple park rangers live there, but that's it. If you want to see the island, it's a 36-hour boat ride from Costa Rica, but you'll have to sleep on the boat because you won't be allowed on the island. My last story of the day comes from the Daily Argus Leader out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Remember how in the first story I talked about the news not always being completely accurate and details varying from one newspaper to another? Well, this story is one that was reprinted from the Associated Press in at least a couple dozen newspapers on March 2nd, 1932. This article uses terms such as, The Story Goes, and According to Legend. That right there tells me even the newspaper questions the story. But it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it to you, and you can decide for yourself if it's true. This story is about a man named Andy Brogan. When Andy was young, he immigrated from Ireland to the United States. Filled with the American dream, Andy moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and opened a saloon. Things were going great, and business was booming, so Andy opened another saloon in Knoxville, Tennessee. However, something happened in 1907 that I didn't know about before this article. I always assumed prohibition started for the entire country when the 18th Amendment was passed in 1919, but I was wrong. 33 states already had prohibition laws in some form or another, or at least had cities that had enacted their own prohibition laws. Tennessee was one of those states, and in 1907, Andy Brogan had to shut down his successful saloons. So, he sold the buildings and took his money and his young wife and moved north to seek out another life. Now, the article never mentions the name of Andy's wife, and since it's a story being retold by someone else, it's possible that the person didn't know or had forgotten. Either way, Andy and his wife moved to Colorado Springs for a bit, and then Andy decided to leave his wife there with their money while he searched for the perfect town and home where they could live permanently. He found what he thought would be the ideal place. Unfortunately, I don't know where that place was because the article doesn't say. Anyway, Andy sent word for his wife to join him, but she didn't come. He sent word again. Nothing. Finally, Andy goes back to Colorado Springs himself to get his wife. But she's not there. She had disappeared and taken their entire $45,000 fortune with her. Friends, that amount of money now would be well over a million dollars. Andy spent the next 27 years looking for his wife. He traveled all over Canada and the United States looking at all the women's faces he passed, hoping to find his missing bride. He'd go to a town and work for a while until he had enough money, and then he'd move on again. In Andy's old age, a man by the name of John F. Kelly, who lived in Cleveland, 
helped to take care of him, and I believe that's who told this story to the news outlets. When the article was printed, Andy had just passed away at age 75, having never found his wife or his fortune. And John Kelly was trying to raise money to pay for Andy's burial, so he wouldn't have to be buried in Potter's Field. The headline for the article reads, Death ends long hunt for wife who took husband's cash, left him years ago. Search is failure. Poor Andy. Before I go, today's advertisement comes from the Daily Argus Leader. This ad is for a pair of men's work overalls that are made of denim, triple stitched, and reinforced in areas of heavy wear. Can you guess how much a pair of these overalls would cost? One pair would set you back a whopping 59 cents. That's crazy. Friends, thanks for joining me for this episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. Check in with me next week at the same time for an all-new episode. And if you can't wait in between, then hop over to the Facebook group of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed and see what else I'm sharing there. You can also find all the sources I've used in this episode on the Facebook group. Talk to you next week.